Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Hey folks, and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast for film lovers by film lovers. Each week we pick a film, we discuss that film, we review that film, and we talk about some of the ideas and themes that it throws up in. Currently we are doing a season on high school movies, so it'll be kind of placing that movie a little bit in that overall genre. And after that, we start talking about some of our recommendations, films that we like and we recommend based on this week's movie. Before all of that, we'd like to kind of catch up on what else we've been normally watching or reading in the last week or so um, that or that we've enjoyed lately. So Sam, has there something you particularly enjoyed or want to steer folks away from in the recent week or so? Uh, no, I'm really boring. I haven't done anything. Um, the only thing we've been watching is I mean, something I've talked about a fair amount already on this podcast is the latest series of MasterChef The Professionals which is it's just it's quite therapeutic just to watch and not have to be terribly engaged with what's going on and there's something, especially in The Professionals, there's something really quite pleasing uh, pleasing the aesthetic about the plates and look at them as sort of kind of works of art and it's, it's quite pleasing to look at them like that so yeah must chef professionals latest series of fair enough fair enough how about I, you i have finally got round to uh, finishing off one i think one of the best film trilogies of recent years and that's john wick um i'm a big fan of the first two and the third one through dint of new job and uh, new daughter i never actually saw it at cinema um, and I missed out on that. It's kind of been sitting there in my in my pile to watch for a while. And so at uh, the weekend, I thought, you know what? Now's the time. Now is the time. Cracked it open uh, and gave it a watch. And it's it's brilliant. If you like the first two and who doesn't, you'll love the last third one. It is the same thing, but more so. It builds on the lore of the world. And yeah, all, all in all, I can't say enough good things about the John Wick series. And the third one is is one of the best. I won't say more than that because if you love it, you already know about it. So yeah, John Wick three, it's it's brilliant. Because I think we talked, we've talked about the first one before, and I certainly was pleasantly surprised by it because I just thought, oh, I wasn't really expecting much from it. Mm. It was before I knew anything about Ken Reeves actually being good post two thousand sort of thing. Um. We don't talk about the Matrix sequels. Um, I will always watch films. I've got a lot of love for those films. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I was pleasantly surprised by the first one. So yeah, I need to. I haven't even seen the second one yet. So I, I definitely need to see both. You those. do, you do. This week we are continuing our high school season, um, following on from the Breakfast Club last week with Dead Poets Society. Gentlemen, what are the four pillars? Tradition, honor, discipline, excellence, manners up. Welton Academy for Boys. 
a breeding ground for the future leaders of America, an institution dedicated to achievement, virtue, and conformity, a school whose rigid standards are upheld by every single teacher, except one. Come on, Mr. Overstreet, you twerp. Mr. Anderson, are you a man or an amoeba? Language was developed for one endeavor, and that is to communicate. No! To woo women. Mr. Keating. Dead Poets Society is... Well, it's, it's an American film, but directed by an Australian, um, so it's, it's confusing in its provenance. Um, and it tells... It's a historical piece talking about uh, an English teacher at a prestigious boarding school in America in the late 1950s. And um, it starts, I suppose, similarly to The Breakfast Club, it starts with sort of a a clique of stereotypes sort of thing. Um, But the film does some really interesting things with saying what happens to these stereotypes when they're influenced by the Robin Williams character, the Mr. Keating Mm. character who is at the centre of this film. So, Rob, what did you think about this? I mean, it's brilliant. It's undeniably brilliant. The film is heralded as as a brilliant movie down the years. I think it's not going to be against the grain to say this film is is brilliant. I will say this. This is a film that I've seen many times over the years. And it's weird. It's one of those films that, as I watch it, I go in peaks and troughs as how much I like it. So sometimes I watch it and I'm like, yeah, sold, brilliant, this is amazing. This is this is a wonderful film end to end. And there are some times where I'm like, the kids really annoy me and I find it baggy and loose. But I will say that even in those times when I'm not as keen on the film, the ending always lands. Now, I think, I should say, listeners, we will be talking spoilers from day one on this because it's a lot of the movie is... A, building up to sort of the the tragic end of it. So spoilers abound. But the ending always lands. The ending is, is pitch perfect. This time, I was somewhere in the middle. At certain points, I kind of found the kids a bit annoying. And I suppose that's because as I'm aging up, I'm further and further from their experience. And there's maybe something that we see, I suppose, more over this season is that these films that spoke to me hugely when I was a teen maybe do this with me now. And this one, this watch through, not as much, but it's still brilliant. It's still so well done with so many of the um, the character actors that play the kids, just nailing those roles. Robin Williams is sublime. He you can still see him in there, you know, the his work in things like Good Morning Vietnam and that more sort of, you know, high impact, high velocity style he's used to. It's still there. You still see like it kind of not clamoring to get out, but he's calling upon it where he needs. But he just he just nails that moment. So many of the quiet moments he just nails perfectly. So yeah, I'm I'm I think it's a brilliant film. Even if at times I'm like this isn't as good as it was last time, I always come back to it. Well, what about you, Sam? Yeah, me too. Um, I don't think I've seen it as many times as you have, but I've certainly seen it a few times. Um, it has been a while since I last saw it, actually, and yet you're right to say spoilers from the outset because I'm about to drop one. I 
It has been so long since I last saw it that I've forgotten they committed suicide. I know there, I know there was a huge thing, and there was a reason that Keaton was a scapegoat. Mm. And kind of the back of mind, I sort of knew there was something there, but I, I really did. It was wasn't really surprised when it happened. When it happened, I thought, oh yeah, exactly. That's I, I remember now. But it, it was just sort of. Yeah, it's not something I'm I'm so familiar with this film. Mm. Um, it's interesting. I want to I want to start with talking about like you said there. I think Robin Williams is amazing, and I was just looking at some of the critical reviews of it um, just now. And Roger Ebert, who is a, a well respected and um, sadly departed film critic, um, and he used to give lots of films he he used to rate films out of four stars and he i i would um, agree with lots of the things he said he he only gave it two out of four stars and he said some really quite negative things particularly about robin williams and one of the things he said was that at times williams veered too much into his comedian persona mm. and i agree that he does and yet I think that's why it's so brilliant. As you say, it's the energy you get from something like Good Morning Vietnam is still there. And you can see that at times. And th- this is this is why I disagree with Eva, because we talked before, we talked last week about how this is going to be different for me as a teacher. Um, but one of the things that I think of teaching as, and it's interesting that he's an English teacher, as I am, um, one of the things I think of teaching as is a performance, because that's part of what you need to be doing. Mm. And I think one of the reasons that he's so brilliant is that he, of course, he's a natural performer. Robin Williams is a performer, but... A good teacher has to be a good performer, and that's what I really liked about him. I so yes, I I really really respected. That I can weirdly, I'm going to kind of back Ebert here a little bit, um, despite what you're saying. Okay. I think that I think that he's right because one moment really stood out to me, um, and he starts teaching Shakespeare um, in the film, and he breaks out a couple of impressions. Yes. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was one of those things because Robin Williams, at a certain point, in this career, at this point in his career, before he kind of gone too much down sort of the the serious route of acting, was he was known for his style. He was known to be a certain sort of comedian, um, and he's very good at it. And he di- he disappears into the Keaton role so well, like he he like you lose that you you stop seeing Robin Williams, the comedian and performer, and you start seeing. Keating. And I think he's brilliant at that. And then occasionally moments that come up about that remind you it's Robin Williams. Yes. No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And so I, I can see what Ebert's saying there in that especially and that was the one that really stuck out to me when he, he does the Marlon Brando impression and mm, um yeah. he and then there's one person I'm 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 a big Disney fan and he recycles the same that's bad. Like he recycles that joke when he does the, the genie. Um, in Aladdin, and that's probably post this movie. But like, you occasionally you pick up, oh, that's still Robin Williams. It's still Robin Williams doing this. Yes. Yeah. Um, so whilst he is brilliant, I think that 
there are moments when you still see Robin Williams. Mm, I see. Yeah. One one thing I I only realised I've I've taught the poet at the centre of this all this Caesar Day copy of himself is based on a poem that Robin Williams talked about right at the beginning by Robert Herrick, who was a terrible misogynist, and I won't go into that. Um, so, having taught it, it was interesting knowing knowing the text and looking looking back on it from that perspective. I thought there was something fairly hammy about it, mm. and yet when he starts talking about death and seizing the day and and doing something in life and looking at the pictures and all these boys are dead now. And you think, and that really got to me, in kind of, I I wasn't an absolutely amazing, amazingly huge Robin Williams fan. So I I was never particularly affected by his death in the same way as, say, Victoria Wood, I always thought was amazing, and I was really, really saddened by her death. And I was never sort of struck in the same way by Robin Williams, but it was just that moment where you have someone who himself has died too young talking mm. about the deaths of young people. Well, that was that was really affecting. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. I think that's any, watching any Robin Williams film these days has an element of what could have been, I suppose. And I think mm. he had, I mean, he made some amazing films, had a great career. But as you say, th- th- there was still more there. That he still died too young. Mm. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think there is part of that to it. I mean, I think it's interesting that this movie, if you want to sort of look at more of a text movie, this film is about poetry in many ways. Mm. And it is poetic in the way it handles a lot of the movie i mean the sort of the especially the sort of the scenes that you see of the school they're in it is all very evocative it's long shots and bagpipes playing yes and it is trying to it, the, the film i mean i think it's a very well shot film but it shoots so well and the, the, particularly the, the boys the young boys the camera is clearly deeply in love with these boys it shoots them so well they all look so mm. you know young and beautiful and full of life, and I think that it's it is that kind of poetic movement. And the film is you see it in the camera movements; they're all kind of slow moving. Where there are the most of them are kind of it's all very. I suppose what the word for it is is it's just it's not simple, but it's just kind of evocative, um, and well done and expansive. Because there's so, so many scenes in where I was watching it, and I'm thinking, well, why are they showing me this? Why? Why are we seeing this? It doesn't really matter, but it it does because as I say, that ending the ending is nailed because of everything before it. The ending mm, of yeah. Neil's death and the whole you know, oh captain, my captain, that whole thing it it only works because we've had lived with these characters and things like the mm. the guy who said who, whose poem was the cat on the mat, like he stands up, and that that yes. moment is literally. A guy who's had like five lines, standing up, nodding, and like, it, it hits home because you've seen his character go through the like you knew where he was and you know where he is now, and that's a journey in itself. Yeah. And I think that's what I really liked about it is that the film is just so evocative of an era which was made, you know, what in the it was released in eighty nine, so probably shot in the mid late middle eighties. 
set in the 50s. So it's already evoking this time, and especially as an American audience, this is one of those, sort of, shall we say, boarding schools harking back to, shall we say, the old world. So it's a very mm. British-style boarding school that has been transplanted to America. So it's already it's yeah. sketching. It, the film is sketching on a past. It's built on a past prior to that. And they talk about, in the very opening scenes, they all the boys there recite the four pillars, which is another history. And like Sam and I went to a school like this. We didn't wasn't a boarding school, but we went to a school that had a school anthem and it was all boys. And like it was very like there were real shades of our school when watching this. I don't know if you felt that. But that, you know, that feeling of, of, of raising young men for the future and you know, an important thing is the percentage that go to, in this case, Ivy League, but in our case, Oxbridge. Like, that was a metric the school cared deeply about. And here they care yeah. about the Oxford and preparing boys for the future. And it's not about teaching free thinkers. It's about teaching them to pass the exams to get into good colleges. Yeah, that that was... When you have that scene between Keating and the headmaster and he says, effectively, stop dicking around, just prepare them mm. for their exams. And because he starts off as, he starts off sort of quite glibly, Keating saying, well, I, I thought, edu- forgive me, I thought education was about preparing free thinkers mm. or, or something. And the response is really... I mean, really po-face, it's definitely no, don't do that, stop messing around, just teach mm. him for the exams. And you, you really feel that. And th- there's that sort of... Yeah, it, it felt like... I mean, it, I talked last time about the fact that Vernon was the end of a generation of teachers. It feels like there's a, a sort of a difference between generations here when you have all of those teachers who are within this structure of Welton. And like you say, we have teachers like that in that structure at our school. And then you have Keating coming into this, who, yes, he was a he was a pupil at the school, but he's definitely mm. very different. Yeah, I propose mean, then I'm going to have to pick your brains a little bit then as a teacher. This is one of those things where, you, like, we didn't have many teachers like Keating at school. I've never had teachers like that. And is it one of mm. those things where you're just kind of like, oh, that's lovely, but that's not really how teaching is. Or is it like, yes, that's how everyone wishes it was. And, you know, like, where, where does the reality sit in this world where you've got, you know, Nolan and Keating and, and the line between the two? Well, this, this is interesting. This is something I wrote down actually, because this is not what teaching mm. is like. Um, there are moments of this when you think, well, that is what you want to replicate in the classroom. Snapshots, like overall, definitely not what you use like. But that's kind of not the point, because this whole film is kind of about reproducing the experience of what it's like to be in this situation, how it feels mm. like to be 17, and to have unjust parents who force you to do things you don't want and to be rolling up against the structure of a school yeah. that doesn't agree with you. So it kind of doesn't matter that this is not realistic because who cares? That's not what the aim it of the It comes back to the idea of it being a poem, I suppose. 
in the, 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 they say mm. that they're trying yes. to evoke the mood, and like it is obviously like the film is an absolute tragedy. Like it is a tragic, tragic movie, and you know, no one comes out of this movie well at all. It is that kind of thing you say, but it, it doesn't evoke the emotion of good teaching um, without actually the mm. nuts and bolts, I suppose. That's something else I want to talk about the the way in which I just want to tell you. I thought Robert Sean Lennon's performance was absolutely brilliant, um, and I thought particularly in *Midsummer Night's Dream* at the end, um, when his, some of his speeches as Parker brilliant, and yet also it's when you start to it's when I start to think, oh yes, that's what mm. this film is about. This is all about transformation. This is all about the fact that each one of these boys starts somewhere and ends somewhere mm. completely different. And that's exactly what the Shakespeare play is about. And that's why this is not some... I mean, I love love, actually, but it's just... Like, the play at the end of it is just sort of crowbutting, so you've got to play... Because the narrative wants there to be a play there, is that is there? There are certain films where there's yes. just a play for the sake of it because there has to be a play. This is not that at all. This is there, and it's that play, and it has to be there, and it has to be doing those things for. It's in service mm. of the narrative, and it's something. It's actually to get. To get a little bit too English teacher about it, this is something that Shakespeare himself did, and this is kind of I think this is why the use of Shakespeare mm. is so effective here because this play within a play idea was something that Shakespeare was doing already. So there's something sort of almost like a Shakespearean tragedy yes. in this in this film. No, I, I, I was thinking at the end when we were watching it, like it is. It's interesting that obviously they've picked um, *Midsummer Night's Dream*, which isn't a tragic play, um, to to have mm. that moment in. But it is it is a brutally tragic film, and the only literal glimmer of of hope in this movie is is the um, Ethan Hawke character, kind of who is terrified of um, standing up and being. He makes that first move. So there is a thin silver lining, but like Kitten loses his job, Neil dies. Like it, the friendship group is torn apart um, by um, what mm. what they do, and it's just it's so bleak in many ways for a film that is in many ways uplifting. Like you, you end the movie going, oh yeah, that was, that was, I, a moment at the end is really brilliant, but the moment after that is them all in detention. He's still fired. But the film doesn't care. The film is, mm. it's, it's the yeah. idea of this film. Like we watch, like I'm thinking a lot about this movie and thinking about Avengers films, which is a weird th- link to make. But bear with me. Avengers films are all about the ongoing story. Even John Wick Chapter Three, or I watched this week, which is another brilliant film. But it's all about what happens before, what happens afterwards. It's about drawing you into the world of the little bits of lore and all that sort of stuff. And this film. Has none of that. There is no feeling you watch the film and think, well, I wonder what happened next. You know, Dead Poets Society 2. Like, that film never even existed in anyone's mind to set a sequel to this. Because it it like it ends on that moment, mm. and that's that's the perfection of the story. It's like last week. It's like a Breakfast Club, in that th- what happens next doesn't matter. 
Um, and I'm, I'm hoping yeah. that we'll see more of that as we go through this sort of this uh, this genre. Because obviously, high school movies, by their very nature, have a lot of story ahead of them. Um, you know, I think both mm. of us will say like neither of us are married to people we dated in high school. Um, but at the same time, high school romance movies often end with the big kiss and the problem then, all that kind of stuff. But there's a whole story after that. Whereas the nature of high school mm. movies means that there can't be. Like you don't want what happened 20 years down the line because that's a dark, horrible, like, you know, that's a very different movie. Um, I mean, I, I'll link it back. I've been watching Veronica Mars recently, which started out as a high school procedural kind of movie, is now grown-up PI. And the places they had to take that story to take her from being kind of fun-ish TV show to where it is now were huge, and it was a hard fight. And I think that in many ways, the power of the high school movie and why sometimes they have this enduring capacity is because they are contained. And there isn't a feel or a need to have, mm. you know, 11 things ahead about you. Like, that, that movie isn't going to be there. Yeah. I think that one very... It's interesting you talk there about um, Midsummer Night's Dream being used when it's not on tragedy... But I think, and it links to this, this idea of saying there's not a sequel, but, okay, yes, it's not a tragedy, but the ending that you saw with Neil recitally is Puck standing up and saying, basically, mm. everything might be a dream. Everything you've just seen, it was brilliant, but yeah, it might be a dream. And there's that quality to a high school film. It's just like... This this all might be a dream. None none of this might be real. And you know what? They, that's the thing about dreams. There aren't sequels to dreams. There's just an end. Why it has that feeling? It has that feeling of, I suppose, an ethereal quality. You kind of float through the story, don't you? Sam, do you have anything to recommend? Yes, and I I have three this week. Because I had two, and then thought of a thematic one, and I thought I have to do that as well. So, two actor-based recommendations. One is linked to um, probably Sean Lennon, um, who was, as I said, absolutely amazing in this. And I think I would have to mention House, um, which is 2004 to 2012. And it feels like, I was just looking at TV that came out at the time, it feels like this was kind of a watershed moment in TV. And it feels like this was something different. And there were shows coming out in 2004, 2005 that were qualitatively, qualitatively different. Now you have, I mean, I'm going to make reference to Prison Break and Lost, not the best examples of this given where they went but you have an initial premise which was absolutely brilliant like the first season of Lost the first season of Prison Break really gripping and the first season of House I think is really great and it's really it's it's an it's an incredible mm. idea about what can be done on TV um, so yeah I really loved particularly the opening season of House my second recommendation has to be a Robin Williams film because it's Robin Williams and sorry Rob it's another Christopher Nolan film because I thought the 
basically the two-hander between Al Pacino and Ron Williams. Insomnia in 2002 was very good. So I want to talk about that. Um, and finally, as I said, I, obviously the fact, had a thematic recommendation, uh, which was another film which sort of captures the experience of being taught without necessarily being true to life. Um, mm. teaching wise is the history boys from 2006 um, Nicholas Heitner adaptation of play and adaptation from Alan Bennett's work but Nicholas Heitner, Richard Griffiths and Francis de la Tour so those are my three recommendations this week well if you're doing three I'm doing three so uh, ah, get on board um, first of all the director, Peter Weir, we haven't talked too much about him and his work this week, but I think he's a great director who's done some very, very good films over the years. Um, and so I want to talk about a film of his that is little less um, well-known, though anyone who sees the poster will recognise it instantly. Um, and that's his 1974 film, The Cars That Ate Paris. It is a horror movie in many ways. Um Tells the tale of a film called Paris in uh, Australia that deliberately causes car crashes, car wrecks. Um, so they can basically take the wrecks and then sell them as, as scrap and salvage. It heavily influenced, um, some parts of, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, um, to the point where they literally stole some of the cars and rebuilt them for the movie. It is a very weird film, but I've, I enjoy it. And Peter Weir, who's very, like, very different film, obviously, compared to uh, Dead Boat Society, but it's a very good one to check out. The second recommendation is an actorly one. Um, Josh Charles plays Knox Overstreet in this, and we didn't talk about it too much, but the sort of the Knox Chris romance thread that ran, th- ran through the movie is one that I really did appreciate because it is. It is kind of very well sketched in that kind of teenage romance way in that it's weird and intense and messy and you do stupid things to try and prove your love and sometimes it works. You kind of have a moment. I liked how messy that was. I liked him in it in that kind of you do when you're a teenager, you meet somebody or you interact with somebody and they just blow you away and they change your world and that kind of intense teenage love that we all feel he nailed that and i really liked him he's been in lots of things over the years um many many things and he's still working today um but he made a film what four or five years after dead pet society he popped up in a film that i love it's it's not great uh, but i love it and that's the 1991 film don't tell mom the babysitter's dead and it's one of the films that was always on when I was a kid. I think we had it on VHS. And it's kind of like another, not a high school, it's a teen comedy um, about some kids whose babysitter for the summer dies um, and then they have to fend for themselves. It's a great bit of sort of 90s, early 90s teen comedy. And I just think, you know, I should plug that movie. My third one, to blow Sam's mind, is a book. <laughs> Yes. Oh, yes. hang on. No, if it's the one that I thought, then I really avoid myself from not mentioning it. So I'm really glad you are. Okay. So this is a book. It's not a high school book, but it's a college book. Um, and it's the 1992 novel, uh, The Secret History by Donna Tart. It is 
kind of about it's very it's another very tragic story set in a um very sort of i suppose the college version of of, Col- of welton college in that it's kind of prestigious it's kind of smallish and it's very uh, kind of new england throwback to england style it is one of my favorite books of all time um, it plays with similar themes about obsession and teaching and charismatic teachers taking children and kids through something. I won't say anything more because to say any more would be to spoil it horribly. But if you haven't read The Secret History, I would strongly recommend you pick it up. I'm not the world's biggest reader, let's be honest here. Um, but this is one that I've returned to year in, year out. Absolutely amazing. And yeah, I'm really annoyed with myself for not mentioning it. In fairness, I wasn't going to mention it, but then you brought three, and I thought I've got to pull one out of nowhere. Good. Um, and I literally finished rereading it last month um, for the eighth amount of times, so I should uh, dig that out again. So, guys, we will be back next episode with another movie, another high school um, movie. This time from 1993. Once again, weirdly, another retro piece. So, filmed at least in 1993, but set far earlier than that, and that is the movie dazed and confused till then guys you can find me online at kaiju fm you can find me at life underscore academic and you can find both of us at pressy podcast and we'll see you back here in two weeks